Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. I have two interviews for you today. The first focuses on extremism, law enforcement, and social media monitoring, and the second on what news that an AI voice clone was used to generate segments of a new Anthony Bourdain documentary tells us about the future of synthetic media. The January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol was preceded by weeks of online promotion and planning, including from former President Donald Trump, who told his supporters the event would be wild. What should the FBI have known in advance, and how does social media monitoring play out in the FBI in practice? To get an expert opinion on these issues and what they mean for the effort to curb domestic extremism, I spoke to Clint Watts, a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. He is also a national security contributor for NBC News and MSNBC and author of the book Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. Previously, Clint served as a U.S. Army infantry officer, an FBI special agent, as the executive officer of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, as a consultant to the FBI's Counterterrorism Division, and as an analyst supporting the U.S. intelligence community and U.S. Special Operations Command. Clint, this week the White House released a national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. You immediately took to your blog, excellent Substack, which I would recommend to folks, and kind of walked folks through it. So what were your first kind of considerations when you saw this document? The first thing is that they did it because domestic terrorism had been picking up since President Obama was elected. And I had worked at FBI headquarters during that time frame. I was actually working at FBI headquarters the day he was elected. I remember in the time right after that, it was very clear, you know, white supremacist machinations, threats, all of that was picking up. And then by 2000, I think it was 14 and 15 in there, I was working with New Jersey State Police and Homeland Security. It's very clear domestic terrorism was going to outpace international terrorism. That was even at the height of ISIS. But for most jurisdictions in the U.S., it was way more domestic than international. It was already heading that way. So it's interesting that they decided to do something about it. I testified to the Senate uh, Homeland Affairs Committee on domestic terrorism in, I think it was September 2019. And it was going nowhere. I mean, that hearing, the numbers were overwhelming. Everybody knew domestic was on the rise and they were kind of shutting it down. And this is right after El Paso. You might remember the white supremacist attack on the Walmart in El Paso. So it's remarkable that they decided to do something at all, particularly because a lot of these people are the same people that had done international terrorism 10 years before and had written the strategy under the Obama administration for what was really countering violent extremism, which was Al-Qaeda, ISIS. That's what they were focused on. And many of these things government can't affect, nor do they have any authority to operate on, you know, like changing people's cultural beliefs and stuff. It's kind of like the pillar four of it. And I wish they had just taken pillar three, which is the main effort and put it up at the top, which is instead of talking about, you know, preventing or understanding and sharing information that's always like boilerplate. They just go to disrupt and deter domestic terrorism activity. That's what they should be focusing on. You'll hear them, uh, whether it's uh, Merrick Garland or Director Ray, they'll say, 
we police violence. They keep like emphasizing that we police violence, not free speech. Then they should have just jumped to that. That's the that's the tip of the spear. That's the people closest to boom. And those are the easiest ones to really get after, you know, to a degree. So there was a lot of discussion actually in this document about speech and some reassurances that you know, this strategy is not about confronting uh, speech or trying to limit free expression. I mean, that does seem to be a key tension. Yeah. And, you know, they're talking about digital programming, media literacy, critical thinking skills. That's all that sort of dis- disinfo wish- mishmash, you know, that we've heard in recent years. And that's all fine. But ultimately, like the money they're committing is $100 million. That is nothing in government spending. I mean, that doesn't go that far at all, uh, especially when you start resourcing programs. A tractor trailer of missiles costs many millions, right? So like just thinking about the structure of the government and how much they're really devoting to it, it's pretty thin, you know, amount of money. I worry that when I see those kinds of things, that means they'll have a working group or something like that. They'll not really commit to it. And they do emphasize speech versus violence, but it comes down, everything in this comes down to two parts. One, do you want to preempt or react? And what will you let the federal government look at to do those things? That's it. Every strategy in domestic terrorism comes down to those two things. And then ultimately that shakes out into, do we have a domestic terrorism law? And, or um, what do we want in terms of preemptive social media monitoring? Those are the two things, ultimately, that all of these strategies rest on. They can write it any different way they want, but it's, it's about two things at this point. That brings up, uh, I guess, our second uh, point of discussion, which is uh, really the question of social media monitoring, which has come to the fore with the testimony of FBI Director Ray to the House Oversight and Reform Committee about the events of January 6th. I guess I'll, I'll play you a couple of clips that specifically kind of queried Ray around the issue of social media monitoring. I mean, I think one of the headlines that came out of the hearing altogether was the idea that Parler, the social media platform favored by more extreme supporters of President Trump, had actually sent more than 50 warnings to the FBI ahead of January 6th about uh, the possibility of violence. That's the first confirmation we had about a platform sending specific intelligence or information related to possible violence on January 6th to the FBI. That, you know, was, was a key part of the conversations. I'll play you this. Um, Director Ray, we now know that the attacks were planned out in the open on popular social media platforms like Parler and Telegram. Among thousands of violent uh, messages, there were messages saying, quote, if that they certified, quote, if they certify Biden, we will storm Capitol Hill executions on the steps. Also, uh, wide social media activity included posts discussing specific details ahead of the attack, ranging from maps with layouts of the Capitol complex and construction plans for the gallows. Um, During the Judiciary Committee hearing, Director Ray, you noted that none of the more than 500 people charged so far had been previously under FBI investigation. Does the FBI regularly include social media monitoring as part of its efforts to combat, uh, combat violent extremism? Thanks. I, uh, two things. I appreciate the question. So first, uh, it's not none. It's almost none, uh, which Got is it. important. And, and of course, our investigation is very much ongoing and the facts are changing probably even as we speak here. Uh, but second, uh, as to social media, uh, I think there's a, 
there's it's understandable that there's a lot of confusion on the subject. We we do not we have very specific policies that have been at the department for a long time that govern our ability to uh, use social media. And when we have an authorized purpose and proper predication, there's a lot of things we can do on social media, and we do do, and we aggressively do. Mm -hmm. But what we can't do, what we can't do on social media uh, is without proper predication and an authorized purpose, just uh, monitor just in case on social media. Now, if the policies should be changed to reflect that, that might be one of the important lessons learned coming out of this whole experience, but that's not something that, that currently the FBI has mm -hmm. the uh, either the authority or certainly the resources, frankly, to do, which gets back to the, the point that I was making in response to one of your colleagues earlier about. Thank you. Sorry. I, I you know, one of the things that I kind of went and did after the fact is, is looked at the, the guidelines for domestic mm -hmm. uh, authorizations. And I, I was sort of confused about Ray's response about predication and and whether in fact the FBI has the ability to essentially surf the internet and and look for potential violent threats um so what do you make of that it, what he said there is everything i've ever heard anytime i ever worked at the FBI or since the FBI is actually have more stringent rules around social media monitoring than a lot of states that i've worked with states have more ability depending on what the rules are you can only do an assessment when you have a justifiable reason to launch an investigation. January 6th, until they breach, I, I can tell you how it would be perceived as lawyers. I'm going to speak as if I'm an FBI lawyer. And I don't get along with FBI lawyers, by the way. Like, So just take it from this perspective. But they would say January 6th, up until the point where they crashed over those barriers and started assaulting police officers, was uh, the right of those people to assemble and express their free speech. That would be it. So you would not be able to open up an investigation because there's not been a crime, nor are you aware necessarily of people plotting a crime. Even before, when you hear Ray, he said, you know, the night before everyone's focusing on this Norfolk memo, which, oh, by the way, if, if anyone had any idea how many memos go through the FBI on a given day about something or some threat, or that someone posted something crazy on social media. I mean, it's a triage problem. And that's kind of what he was getting to at the end. He was like, if you want us to inhale all of social media and watch it, we'll do it. I'm going to send you a check, you know, a bill. And you tell me if you want to pay for this and you want me to do it. So assessments are usually ones, I'll give you an example. Assessment is something that would be kicked off where someone says, I'm going to kill Mike Pence, right? It gets sent in as a tipper lead, and then they would do an assessment, you know, of that. Uh, that could be an example of something specifically. To proactively surf the internet, they would have to have a justifiable reason to do that or some impetus to believe that it could be a threat. Now, the FBI is not the only entity in the federal government either, the Secret Service, right? So the Secret Service would potentially have more authorities to do what would be called like defensive social media monitoring. Let's say you're having a big federal event, right? Um, with the president involved or, or some dignitary or uh, the Capitol police potentially could set up, Hey, we are responsible for defending, you know, congressmen around some certain event. I don't know what their authorities are exactly, but I think people think the FBI like sits as an intelligence organization and hovers over all of social media and looks out proactively for things That is definitely not the case. It is a, ironically, uh, it is a case-driven organization based on law.
right? And so when they have a threat, then they assess that threat. That's an assessment. If they think it's worth investigating, they'll, they'll open a preliminary inquiry. And then if it m- meets the metrics of a, a, a full field investigation, they'll elevate it to that. They open a case, they assign agents to it, that, that sort of thing. And this ultimately comes down to terrorist designation. I can tell you right now, like, had this been, let's say the threats on social media was ISIS supporter says he's going to show up on January 6th and break into the Capitol. Easy peasy, man. You can kick it on because anything that is Al-Qaeda or ISIS inspired as designated by the State Department and foreign terrorist organization designation, the case is already open to do preemptive like social media gathering and intelligence. They can start moving and they do. They routinely do, right? Like around certain events. But anything domestic, it immediately goes into a category of free speech. There are no domestic terrorist organizations designated, you know, which allow for a collective case. You would have to have someone commit an overt act or threat or be part of a conspiracy. So if you listen to Mike German, by the way, who's head of uh, ACLU, he claims he's a former FBI agent. He worked on domestic extremism. I think he's totally out of date and I disagree with him. He claims that FBI should never doesn't need any more authorizations or tools, should never be looking at that stuff and should only be doing uh, conspiracy cases in the old way of like developing sources and trying to infiltrate you know, plots and things like that. So I'll play you um, another version of what Ray uh, told Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and this was in an earlier hearing with uh, Eric Swalwell. But before the attack, uh, you told the Intel committee that you were looking for and through social media as a key part of investigations and that you would get tips from social media companies. Prior to January 6th, did the FBI receive any tips from social media companies about threats to the Capitol? Well, we've had so much information now, I'm, I'm reluctant to sort of answer uh, any question about the word any, <laughs> especially because we're now, you know, 500 arrests into an investigation and after the fact. Um, certainly we were aware of online chatter uh, about the potential for violence, but I'm not aware that we had any um, intelligence indicating that hundreds of individuals were going to storm the Capitol itself, um, to my knowledge. So that's another another kind of version of, of the same response. Yeah, I think both Swalwell and Ocasio-Cortez's questions suck because they're conflating two different things, which I think Ray is trying to express. And unless you're a lawyer or in the legal stuff all the time, you don't understand what happens when it goes to court, which is, he, he says, an authorized purpose. Once they get an authorized purpose, yes, they do do open source you know, analysis or collection around whatever that investigative function is, which sometimes is preemptive, could be. Um, take uh, the Super Bowl, right? Or something like that, or a big event. They, they may open a case because it's an authorized purpose because they believe there's security threats you know, to that event and they have identified it proactively. There could be times where they do that, but they cannot on any given day, like even today, they could not just go out and set on any of the domestic extremist groups you've seen and just look for accounts that are making threats to the government. Because people would say, what, under what? authority are you just gathering people's personal information you know or not personal information because it's public available publicly available information under what authority are you doing that and another sort of aspect to think about this is it the u.s government particularly domestically this was in reaction to edward snowden 
that this is Edward Snowden fallout. That's why I love it when Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is, you know, jamming the FBI director up about like why they're not proactively looking at social media. There's two reasons. One, uh, the fallout of Snowden era and watching anything with Americans had dramatic impact on everything that happened inside the U.S. government, and they went more conservative, much more conservative. The second part is the political nature of this, and the people in the FBI I have to say they know this very well. Your proud boys next year is their Antifa. That's what's going to happen, right? Like they're going to get caught in this. I want you to focus on Antifa cases. I'm the new attorney general and I was picked by Donald Trump. Okay. I'm the new attorney general. I was picked by Biden. And I want you to focus on proud boys or whatever groups. So that's the trap the FBI knows too well. And they lose in both scenarios, you know, like they always lose. And then the punishment is always, why are you violating people's freedom of speech? Why are you watching what they're saying publicly available? I would add to that the social media companies, Twitter, for example, Twitter does not allow the U.S. government to store data in the intelligence community, U.S. intelligence community. It is barred. They, you know, they're not allowed to do it. They have to go through companies like, you know, Data Miner, I think, does some, you know, proactive early warning stuff for them. I, I guarantee you a solution could be built, but the FBI is going to be reactive. And I've argued inside the building. I can't go into it too much, but I've argued inside the building that it's ridiculous that we don't look at these things. And everyone, you know, at a, at a leadership level will disagree with me and say, we should not do it because the American public, if they find out we are inhaling their social media information is going to be very upset with us. We know how this goes over time. So clearly there are extraordinary questions and civil rights liabilities that monitoring social media introduces and you know, we see that problem not just at the federal level, but also with local police departments. And we have that problem here in New York City, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but isn't there a kind of a different question here and about this event? I mean, you mentioned the Super Bowl on, on some level, you know, January 6th was sort of the Super Bowl of democracy, right? I mean, you had a, a lot of kind of buildup. You had the president himself promoting the event as a, a, a big, wild spectacle. You had press that had covered the possibility of uh, the, the uh, you know, a demonstration going awry. And apparently, according to this uh, hearing, we also had warnings sent from social media companies to the FBI with specific threats. Wouldn't that be predicate enough for the FBI to monitor this situation differently and perhaps behave differently? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know what they're really seeing inside, but across the board, whether it's uh, whether it's the FBI, the DOD's reaction time, the mayor of DC, or the Capitol Police, their reaction on January 6th was absolutely crippled by the president being involved in that day. No doubt in my mind. So like we've spent a lot of time in hearings and yelling you know, back and forth, like, you didn't give me the intel, and I wasn't prepared, and you told me this, and I told you that. No, man, the president was out in the yard. He told him to go to the Capitol. He was there, encouraged him to do that. He did not tell him to stand down, you know, when they were in there. I think it affected the calculus of everybody in every system of government. It absolutely did. I think if you're the FBI director, the idea that you're going to send an intelligence report around, even to the Capitol Police, that says, hey, the president's supporters 
are putting crazy tweets out there to include the president himself. He said it's going to be wild. You guys need to elevate your security status. Uh, there could be something bad that happens. And it's just a report with a series of Trump supporters, social media posts. Oh, my God, that would never have happened. Never. Um, same thing on the, the mayor and the Capitol Police. They were reacting from George Floyd protests the previous summer that were awful. You know, this time last year, awful, out of control, National Guard deployed, disaster, right? So what was their inverse response? Lower presence, no weapons. You know, the president's supporters are talking about the military coming in for a coup. General Flynn, recently pardoned, out in the yard, you know, calling for a coup, says the military is going to show up. I, I think all of them were reacting based on the fact that the president, you know, he created the situation. And it's kind of a sad function, but the good, the good outcome of an awful thing, right, is now you have investigations into the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Three Percenters that you could not have gotten going before. And I think that will have a demonstrable effect on those militia group violent extremists. I think the second is it brings to what I like about this is it brings to the debate, are we going to designate domestic terrorist groups or not? Number one, are we going to let the FBI monitor social media or not? Or maybe that's the DHS. We want to do that, you know, so it's not like hoovering up for intelligence value. I actually think there is some sense where it makes more sense for DHS to do that. They're supposed to be all threats, all hazards. So in some ways, it might make more sense for them to be the ones doing it. And it's going to bring up, you know, the, the Department of Defense posse comitatus when are they to be called and what are they to be used for and how does that play out in the District of Columbia? I think that's another thing that this has surfaced all of it over time. So shortly after January 6th, uh, when this discussion kind of first rose to the fore you know, before these hearings, a group of, I think, 135 civil rights organizations uh, and, and activists wrote a letter basically saying they did not believe that federal government needed any more authorities in order to do the work that was necessary. Um, you know, what do you make of, of, of that contention? I mean, clearly, there's a huge risk of overreach here, and we've seen it after 9-11. We saw overreach in law enforcement and abuses that largely targeted minorities and, and uh, people of color and, and, and people from other countries and people of, of religions that, that perhaps aren't considered uh, mainstream by some. I think it comes down to which, which trade-offs are the American public uh, willing to make. Just in my opinion, when I listen to the public, the answer is none. <laughs> they want 100% preemption of all crime and extremism and 100% privacy and security. You know, separate to this going on right now is, and you'll, you heard Ray in the same hearing talk about encryption, right? Like from the Bureau's perspective, the toughest thing facing them right now is their end-to-end -end encryption used by criminals. Ransomware right now, only possible with Bitcoin. Take the digital currency markets out of it. This would not, we would not see near the scale, right? And so there's a tension right now between our technology world and our expectations of, of governance. And in between our, uh, is a Congress and a set of legislatures that don't pass any rules about anything or really do much at all, right? Ultimately, nothing comes out of there. I've testified five times, six times, never... Not one law, nothing has ever come from ever testifying to any of those committees, right? And those recommendations, 
some that I wrote on Substack in the last two months, but I'll also rewrite them again. I wrote two years before when I testified. That was my statement to the Senate. And no changes are enacted. So it's a weird dynamic where Director Ray is going to keep getting yelled at for not stopping January 6th or not sending the intelligence. Meanwhile, <laughs> they were doing election defense. And what you don't see is this whole group of white supremacists younger online that didn't show up on January 6th, right? They're out. Michigan militia types, the Boogaloo, those sorts of things. Financial crimes through the roof. Civil rights cases through the roof. Uh, cyber cases like ransomware have just been, that's his new priority last week, by the way. So I think you get to this point where he was kind of pointing at the end, like, authorize me to do what you want me to do and I will do it, right? Like, that's kind of how I think you're going to see a lot of the executive branch and Department of Justice people be like, you give me the authorization and the parameters for um, preemptively searching social media, and I will absolutely do it. They probably would love to have that ability. Um, I'm sure investigators would love being able to kind of like preemptively pick up on those things. But they also know that if they were to do that now, they take it to trial, their case is going to fall apart. They would say, you know, a, a, def a good defense lawyer would be like, what was your justification for watching my client say, hey, we need to go kill people? How do you know that's real? And that was a, that was a, you know, as my brand new 2002 FBI agent first call outs, it was always about free speech. Ultimately, almost all of them. You said death to America. Do you really hate America? Yes or no. Are you an Al Qaeda supporter? Yes or no. Right. It was that kind of a call out that you get all the time. Now it's just in social media and the volume is 100 to 1000 times. Right. Those sorts of scenarios pop up. You know, I, I think there's, there's so many different issues that, that come out of just these last couple of things we've talked about, you know, one is whether our system can weather uh, a kind of autocratic coup, right, seems sort of set up essentially not to uh, be able to limit the behavior of an executive, certainly in the moment. Um, and there doesn't seem, unfortunately, to be much, much way to hold them to account after the fact either. Um, so that's one thing. But then, you know, this sort of tension with the First Amendment that, that seems to create this paradox, you know, are we kind of just stuck with these problems? I, I don't think so, actually. But I would like to see the academic and research community come to support in a more productive way than tracking bots and trolls. So, for example, uh, Jack Goldsmith brought this up when I was at a conference at Stanford, and he's exactly right. And he's written about it at Lawfare a little bit. But what is the quantifiable harms of the speech that you believe is causing a harm, right? Like you have to be able to measure that. What is fire in a movie theater in social media? If you can quantify that, I think it's doable, right? We came to it with ISIS and Al Qaeda. Like they were all over Facebook and Twitter for years and growing. And eventually, you know, legislatively, there was a decision like, hey, we want this police. And the EU, they said, this is hate speech. This is the parameters. This is our expectations. And all the social media companies did it then because they're just balancing how much do I police versus the lawsuits I'm going to get from restricting people's speech, right? Like that's their equation, their corporations. And I totally understand that. And I think from all of the executive branch functions, whether it's Department of Defense, Department of Justice, uh, the intelligence community, all of them are super mission focused, but they're contrary to what, you know, I think the norm is perception wise out in the public, they're very risk adverse, you know, on scale you're always going to have people that screw up and do things stupidly and, you know, make mistakes. And at least we have some transparency and we 
we know about it. I think that's great. They're just going to say, I can do up to this and this is what I'm going to do. And I'll be as aggressive as possible. But I know the lawyers will review this and they will stop me, you know, and if it's the press, no one in the last 200 years asked, well, what if it's the president doing it? Right. Like that was always kind of like part of it as well. Rules weren't really, what if the president is saying storm the castle, you know? So I think I would love to see the academic research community say, okay, what's a quantifiable harm? You know, Kate Starbird does some of this. You can see her analysis is going this way. And I love it for that. She's quantifying like this is you a measurable outcome, right? You're starting to see behavior changes, things like that. I think that's great. And then if we had a strong Capitol Hill, they could make legislation that says, we're going to police this. As soon as you do that, social media is assisting you instead of being part of the problem. Law enforcement knows the boundaries and now they can move, right? Uh, intelligence knows what they can do. But the system really right now is in this kind of like wish-wash position where no one's quite sure, you know, what, what's expected of them and what they're allowed to do. It reminds me of part of the Facebook memo that BuzzFeed published uh, about Facebook's own internal assessment of January 6th and their conclusion that essentially they had not been able to characterize what they were seeing as a harm uh, until after the fact. And so they, they sort of missed it because this network of behavior that was taking place on the platform, you know, ultimately produced violence. But because of the way they characterize certain types of speech, they weren't able to kind of draw the dots together. Yeah, and I think they're poorly suited to do that. They're also trying to police content. You're always going to lose if you're content policing. It's a losing battle. You have to be policing actors, not content. You know, and until they change their orientation, they don't want to do that. But until they change their orientation, they're always going to be behind, you know, as a, a all platforms will be if they're just trying to police content, which is how they see it, right? Which is content, terms of service. Yes, no, yes, no. And they're trying the best they can, but it creates this overlapping rules and there's different cultures when ultimately you want to be very narrowly focused on, you know, the most prolific actors. That's how you make a major dent in this stuff, you know, rapidly and, and can really control it. So for them, I think they're always going to struggle till they can get to that kind of position. That's why terrorist designation, for example, is so critical in the international terrorism space. So as they say, Al Qaeda, gone. Facebook, all of them, you know, can pivot and go, that guy's got Bin Laden as an avatar, gone. That guy said, you know, Al Qaeda is great. Gone. You know, it gives them the mechanisms to police content. Um, that's going to be the challenge in the domestic space for quite some time. Yeah. I'm the most aggressive of everybody on the social media stuff compared to the government folks. So remember when I'm, I feel, I always feel weird in these discussions because I'm kind of defending the government but I'm actually just trying to tell you what you would hear if you were in the government, right? Like their perspective of it based on the rules, not that they don't want to do it or they don't want to stop things. They do. I think for the FBI, it's director Ray said it. there's case agents have hundreds of cases. Well, you know, it's, it's a triage problem, but yeah, I would just note to anyone that listens to this. I am the most aggressive on this stuff to a degree. And I'm usually told I'm crazy. So you can imagine inside the government, you know, their take is much more conservative. Were you aware of the 50 times that Parler tried to contact your office about an insurrection? Uh, I'm not aware of Parler ever trying to contact my office. Uh, I am aware since January 6th that Parler uh, has uh, 
made some comments about its communications with the FBI. My understanding is that they sent emails to a particular field office and that some of those contain possible threat information and some of them were referred to domestic terrorism squads for follow-up. And we... I mean, I think what's interesting about that is, you know, essentially uh, Carolyn Maloney, who we heard there, uh, New York representative and chair of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, is, is sort of suggesting, you know, you were given forewarning here. Um, and, you know, it may emerge yet that Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, for instance, also sent uh, specific threat warnings to the FBI. I guess I'd ask you to, I don't know, hypothesize if, if that's the case, if we find out that's the case in the course of these investigations, will that change your view of the FBI's behavior? No, just because I know what the volume is on the other end, and I've seen it before. Imagine your inbox is 250,000 notifications a day. (laughs) I mean, I just don't think people can fathom the volume in the social media era of, hey, this guy said something threatening to me. This guy said something threatening. This guy seems like he's crazy. This is part of why I'll emphasize this again. And not having domestic terrorist designation is crippling because if it was, I let's say parlor, let's say it's ISIS Al-Qaeda. Let's erase the domestic scene. ISIS Al-Qaeda is talking about storming the Capitol in the triage box that goes, whoop, you know, like inside the government, you're like, I have an open case. We're actively collecting. Do we know this person? Uh, do we know this threat? Have we heard about this plot? You know, it goes into an organized system. It goes to the whole terrorist uh, counterterrorism division, the whole ter- counterterrorism division goes, oh yeah, yeah, we got 50 pings, boom, boom, boom. It is the TV show that you imagined in your head, right? Domestic terrorism, no. It goes into the pile, right? And the pile on any given day is pretty crazy. You would just not believe. I can just tell you the n- number of people that on any given month will contact me and be like, should I send this into the FBI is a dozen. And that's just me. I'm not in the FBI. Right? Like I have nothing to do with them. They're asking me if I should send. So think of it from a public standpoint. Now, the question, there is an interesting question I have, which is, did Parler have a good liaison relationship with the FBI? Yes or no? Because I think the main platforms do. The main social media platforms have that kind of relationship that they were to elevate. I would, I would guess, I don't know, but I would guess the FBI would take those things more seriously. You know, they would pay pretty close attention to it. I don't know with Parler. I don't know how mature their processes were? Or is this, hey, man, here's something bad, and they fire it to an FBI agent's email address, right? Like, who knows? That FBI agent might not even be the office that, you know, I would like to know a little more context. Even if that were to happen, though, Justin, you and I personally had talked about mobilizations up to election day, on election day, after election day. It was not a surprise to anyone, you know, that was monitoring the space. I had been on Showtime with John Heileman and did a whole discussion here in this building about it. it. And it aired in October. There was no surprise, you know, for anybody that had been watching what was going on. And then that comes down to authorized purpose. And what do you do when the authorized purpose is because your boss is the one leading the chance, you know, out in the yard. It's a really sad moment kind of in American history where you're like, do I police my boss? You know, how much do I police my boss? Oh, by the way, he just fired the guy who was this job before me. We've got election defense and there's Iran and Russia. And, you know, I'm worried about white supremacists. I think it's probably just like a 
how do you get through the moment kind of thing. And January 6th was a miss in terms of the structure and it, and because it happened in Washington, D.C. Had that happened in another state in the union, I think it would have the outcome would have been very different. You know, imagine it happened in Pennsylvania or Virginia or something like that. You would have seen the National Guard rolled out from that state for sure. You would have seen the governor say, wait a second, I'm not going to let this happen. You know, I'm the governor of the state. I'm responsible for this. That's where the conundrum, I think, of D.C. was like the perfect storm for something catastrophic like this to happen. Carolyn Maloney called this a massive intelligence failure, and she seemed to to blame the FBI. Um, where do you come down on it ultimately? I mean, I guess it sounds to me like your opinion could be shifted for the same reason that I suggested, that if it turns out that Mark Zuckerberg called a senior FBI official and said, you know, the dashboard's blinking red, which, by the way, he did say similar things to that in September publicly. But if, if we find out after the fact sure. that, that Facebook and Twitter gave significant actionable intelligence, what, what do you think you make of this? I don't call it an intelligence failure. I don't see how it can be an intelligence failure when the government did provide raw intelligence. They did do some notification. No one in the public was surprised. There had been events in December and November. I just don't see it as a big intelligence. I mean, we stood up more people in my garage because we thought it was going to be bad, you know, days before. So an intelligence failure is when you don't know something and it shocks you. Arab Spring was an intelligence failure, you know, from the government's perspective. No one knew it was coming. It was a total shock. 9-11 to a degree was an intelligence failure. This was not, uh, we shouldn't, I don't think anybody was ultimately surprised by it. I think the, the gears were frozen due to the circumstances of the situation, which is it. It was led by the president and the president is the boss, right? I think the president's comments to acting Secdef Miller in that Vanity Fair article are just one of the lowest, most shameful things I've ever heard, right? Like Secdef is there trying to brief how he's going to protect the Capitol the next day. President's saying, you're going to need more. And Secdef is like, should I have more? You know, like, what do you want me to do, right? Oh, it's the mayor's call. Mayor, do you want me to deploy more force? No, just just be in uniform, traffic stops. We don't want to bring in guns in here. It could look like a coup. President's saying it might be a coup. You know, like, Jesus, the whole system ultimately came down to that one guy and his behavior. And it still is a weakness and we need to address it. But ultimately, I always try and put myself in that position and say, would I have done something wildly different? And just knowing how the FBI works, I'm more questioning what was the DHS role, you know, in this stuff. Like there are all threats, all hazards, public safety. The FBI is not, re- that's not really their thing, right? Like they're domestic terrorism if designated or open cases, right? Like if you receive warnings, you do pass them on. So a structural failure, yes. A big intelligence failure, no. I don't, I don't buy that. Well, Clint, thank you very much. Thanks, Justin.
Next up, we're going to contemplate the future of synthetic media and the safeguards that need to be in place in a world of voice clones and deepfakes with Sam Gregory, Program Director of Witness, a nonprofit which helps people use video and technology to protect human rights. Sam is an expert on synthetic media and ethics and recently wrote a piece in Wired arguing the world needs more such experts to address the looming problems posed by these new technologies, which offer enormous creative potential along with frightening epistemic implications. I'm Sam Gregory, and I'm the program director at the Human Rights Video and Technology Network, Witness. So today on Twitter, something is wrong. I'm seeing people argue about a documentary review about Anthony Bourdain, uh, the sort of famous traveling chef uh, who uh, died uh, sadly by suicide in June 2018. And they're kind of folks are, are, are really needling in on this one particular segment of this review where the director is talking about a peculiar tactic that he used to voice Anthony Bourdain's ideas. Um, can you tell folks what's going on? Yeah, so and I haven't seen the film, but it's described quite well, I think, in this, I think it's a New Yorker piece, and it basically notes that he is uh, voicing over some emails that were sent from a, to a friend of Anthony Bourdain. And, you know, he has uh, what it sounds like the voice of Anthony Bourdain saying uh, some of the, the lines in the email. And as it turns out in this uh, article, the, the director reveals to the writer that some sentences he couldn't recreate, you know, he didn't have, you know, similar audio. And he used one of the proliferating number of ways you can generate uh, audio that sounds like someone, sort of deepfake audio to replace those words. Um, and I think that's shocked people, right? We've got one of those Twitter kind of uh, sort of collective, uh, uh, but we also have, I think what uh, annoys people is he then goes on to say, you know, oh, maybe someday we should have a doc documentary ethics panel on this, uh, which minimizes, you know, this is one of those discussions we need to be having about when it's, when is it okay to, uh, you know, synthesize someone's face or audio or body and and use it. And, uh, and I think it's bringing up all these questions for folks around consent and disclosure and um, appropriateness. So the quote is exactly kind of as you describe it. It's uh, the, the director, uh, Neville, says, quote, if you watch the film, other than that line you mentioned, you probably don't know what the other lines are that were spoken by the AI and you're not going to know. We can have a documentary ethics panel about it later. Um, Sam, it turns out you've been having ethics discussions about these things for quite some time. Can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the ideas that you've arrived at? Yeah. So, you know, obviously deepfakes, uh, which, you know, is a term that people use for a whole range of these sort of synthetic media generation, right? Like making someone say something, making a voice that sounds like someone, making a voice that doesn't sound like someone that sounds real. You know, that's all been exploding the last three or four years. And at Witness, we made a decision about you know, three and a half years ago that it was really important to, to have a, a group that thinks globally and from a human rights perspective about what mattered uh, as we moved from into an era where more and more content might be visually and audibly fakeable in ways that people might not see, right? And in ways that make it look like a real person said or did something they never did. And so we spent the last three years really working on that, trying to think, how do you bring together the perspectives of people who faced you know, how these types of tools have been used in the past maliciously, people who are building these tools um, and people who are trying to commercialize them. And, and one of the areas we've really focused on in the last year is trying to think, you know, what are the kind of the guardrails as we go into an era where there will be more and more uh, synthetic content? 
and more and more synthetic content mixed in with real content, right? So it's less this idea that, you know, there's this spectacular novelty Tom Cruise deepfake. It's the idea that, you know, in our daily consumption of news or of content on YouTube or TikTok, we're going to see more and more content that is this hybridized content. And so then how do we think about the, you know, sometimes the laws, right? We might have laws that say, you know, you can't use someone's likeness without their permission, right? As we do in, in some countries. Um, with, um, but also what are the kind of guardrails or the norms and principles around it? And, you know, I think there are a set of norms that are kind of people are grappling with, with this statement from the director of the, the Bourdain documentary. And, you know, they're, they're asking questions around consent, right? Like who consents to someone taking your voice and using it, um, in this case, to voice over a private email? Um, and, 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 and what if that was something that if the person was alive, they might not have wanted? I think, you know, you've seen that commentary online. People say this is the last thing Anthony Bourdain would have wanted was someone to do this with his voice. You know, so it's the consent issue is is one of the, the things that is bubbling here. The second is a disclosure issue, which is like, you know, when do you know that something's been manipulated? And, and again, here in this example, the director is saying, I didn't tell people that I had, you know, created this voice saying the words. Um, and I perhaps would have not told people unless it had come up in the interview. Um, so these are bubbling away here, these issues of consent and disclosure. But the backdrop is, of course, that, you know, it really, there is a, a question of like, in what contexts are we used to things being faked and where we're not? So it's actually, you know, there's a, a conversation we, you know, we need to be having as synthetic media gets more and more prevalent about where it's okay, where does it need to be labeled or disclosed? Where do we expect consent? Where do we not? Um, where would we be surprised if you use synthetic media? And where might you be surprised that you use real media, right? Like if you're in a gaming environment, you're kind of surprised if it's something real appears. If you're in a news environment, you'd be surprised if someone told you that you had faked a politician appearing in that news clip. And documentaries fall right in the middle because, of course, you know, documentaries, you've got everything from reality TV where we know it's essentially all staged through nature documentaries where, of course, they didn't actually film all those animals in the wild doing those things, right, through to, you know, a documentary that's like a Frederick Wiseman documentary where he sat on, you know, in a, you know, an institution for a year and filmed everything that happened and says I didn't stage anything. And so this documentary is falling right in the middle of that discussion about what do we expect in a documentary as more and more synthetic media appears and how do these issues of consent and disclosure play out? So you're telling me that Neil deGrasse Tyson in Cosmos didn't actually travel to a quasar. I didn't. It's, I didn't it, it, it's is, it is stunning to realize that amongst his powers is not the ability to fly into a quasar. And that, you know, when you see two praying mantises mate, it wasn't because someone trekked through the forest and waited until they happened to see one under their foot and then filmed it. So you've got a draft of commitments by media companies and content uh, publishers. Um, I don't know if you want to kind of get into some of those, uh, what, what types of things that you think media companies and publishers should commit to? Yeah, you know, and I think this is something we've been working on and, and talking to a lot of the players in this space. You know, there was a great article by Karen Howe from MIT Tech Review just uh, last week that I highly recommend that kind of talked to some of the, the players in the synthetic audio space. And this is really growing and this is driven by improving technology. Um, there's a lot of companies who are starting to create synthetic um, avatars, right? You know, you can create someone who gives a training video, uh, yeah, and then you might get that synthetic avatar, for example, to speak in multiple languages or multiple voices. And of course, you know, companies that have cost centers that are around human voices, human bodies, 
you know, diverse, you know, customers or diverse staff, you know, are really sort of going towards these types of things. And at the same time, of course, you've got news producers and documentary producers, much like the producer of this documentary, who are going, what cool things can I do with these types of tools? And so we've started to talk to a range of those players to sort of think, well, you know, if we want to do this in a way that uh, avoids explicitly malicious usages and also tries to do things like preserve audience trust, right, in, in news media, what do we need to do? And, you know, the easiest ones in some sense are the explicitly malicious, right? Like, you know, most legitimate, you know, news outlets, most documentary makers, you know, many content producers, even in like a, you know, distributed environment like YouTube would not go down the direction of some of the red lines, like will not produce non-consensual sexual images um, and use them to attack individuals, right? Which is of course, you know, one of the things that is the most pernicious use of, of, of deep fakes now. And um, the most prevalent? And the most prevalent, the most prevalent in harmful usages, right? Because if you think about it, like if you use impressions or reface or any of those apps online, there are many more of those silly ones where you've been stuck in Pirates of the Caribbean than there are malicious sexual images probably at this point. Um, but certainly the most harmful use of deep fakes to date, and it's what we've heard globally and what you see in the, the research is, is non-consensual sexual images. So, you know, most legitimate companies, most legitimate media producers don't want to go near that. So these are, there's some obvious red lines. Uh, what we've been looking at in the kind of uh, discussion around principles is, goes back to some of these questions of consent, right? So how do you have transparent and informed consent appropriate to a product, right? Because there are, there are different types of products, right? There might be products where um, a voice actor licenses their voice and says, look, you can use this in all kinds of different ways, and maybe I get a retainer or a, a reuse fee as you use it. There might be an example where um, an actor, you know, allows, you know, you know, the additional voice dubbing that often happens in post-production to happen with this because they're not available for a, you know, for, for that, uh, for the post-production. So, you know, consent isn't a totally fixed concept, but consent needs to be at the center of it. Labeling according to the media environment. So, you know, for example, if you had a, um, a news broadcast and you used a synthetic figure in that news broadcast, the audience expectation is probably that you should know that the figure is synthetic. I don't think that's changing all that fast, right? I'd want to know if someone stuck, you know, uh, an extra figure into the G G7, you know, photo or whatever it is, right? Like, I want to know that's, that's, that's a fake one. You put it in there, you know, so there like labeling might mean you put a halo around someone's head, right? Whenever you insert on the other hand, there are also there are other environments where people might very quickly say, actually, we're kind of expecting that people are going to start using synthetic media, right? Like maybe we'll start to see reality TV with synthetic media and labeling might just mean at the beginning you say, look, we, we synthetically made X, Y, and Z, right? So labeling is again contextual and that disclosure of when you used it. And this one of the hardest things is because there's very different norms in different sort of content production settings. You know, again, between like, you know, a game versus reality TV versus news production versus weather, right? Like already in the weather, you know, you have synthetic, you know, weather broadcasters, right? Who are customized to you. So labeling is the second one we've looked at. And then the third is kind of really being clear about, you know, when you're um, understanding, you know, media can be deceptive, right? Like you can have artistic media that is deceptive or satirical. And we need to protect that. But when is deception malicious? or um, disguised in a way that you don't, there's no way for an audience to understand that it has been changed in a way that can create harm. And I think that's where we start to get into a lot of the discussion that is for audio and for video deepfakes of like this, um, you know, when people say, oh, you didn't get the joke, 
when someone fakes something and it's clearly that someone did it with malicious intent and they're gaslighting us when they say you didn't get the joke. They just, you know, shared it in a way that was designed to cause harm and without any intention for it to be, you know, satire, parody, drama, art. And then the other set of things that we've we've been workshopping with folks are really around commitments to not to, to both be explicit about the policy. So if you're a media producer, you're explicit about, you know, your published policy on how to handle synthetic media, both the stuff you make, but also what you publish, right? So, you know, if you um, share synthetic media from someone else, will you label it? If you mistakenly share something you thought was real, uh, but turns out to be fake, will you correct it? So I think those are the sort of two sides of what's what's happening now, the kind of consent, disclosure, you know, having acceptable norms that your audience really understands. Um, and then the other side of it is, of course, like just, you know, being clear about how you respond to it. And in some sense, media may be the easiest place for this. The, ho- the harder place in the long run is actually as it comes easier and easier to use an app or any kind of generic tool to create, you know, audio or deepfakes. Those guardrails don't exist because there's not a, you know, a producer or a gatekeeper. So... In a weird way, we're having this conversation around this Bourdain documentary, but that is maybe it's a lower hanging fruit when you're starting to deal with, you know, in kind of institutional, almost institutional and kind of professionalized zones of production, like, you know, documentary makers, media outlets versus what is acceptable to do if you're using, you know, an app that can do, a you know, 50 different functionalities. Is there anything else that you want to get across about this, Sam? Yeah, I think there's one thing is just, again, it's like the sort of thought experiments of what we would consider acceptable. I think it's very valuable for this to be a broad conversation. Now, we've we've had a really heavy emphasis in our work of prepare, don't panic, right? And I think it's important to note, like, we're not surrounded by fake voices everywhere around us. You know, most, you know, most, most people calling us on the phone are real people. But it's actually very important to have a public conversation about expectations here and, and to sort of look at these scenarios. And I was actually doing a thought experiment myself before this and saying, if they had animated Anthony Bourdain's face and made him say them, would it have been, how would have people have felt about that? And I think there would have been an even stronger reaction there because it would have been like, you're appropriating his likeness. You're making it seem like he spoke these words when in fact there is something going on here that is actually a kind of classic documentary technique, right? The kind of like, you know, you see it in a Ken Burns documentary. Someone reads the letter from the Civil War soldier to his, you know, his beloved. So there is something they're playing with an existing documentary Thing. If you actually saw him being recreated speaking it, I think there would be an even more strong reaction. And I say that as a thought experiment, just to say I think we really need to have public conversation now as this starts to become more commercially available for any of us to use, but also commercially viable for content producers and media to use about what we think are the expectations and norms. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.